The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop folding, spindling, and mutilating your punch cards and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 213 with guests Jesse Liberty and Alex Horowitz, recorded live Thursday, January 18th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience. Online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's limited Ben and Jerry's binging to sunsets and weekdays, Carl Franklin! Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back. It's Carl and Richard with .NET Rocks. Again, starting your week out right, we hope. Hi, Richard. Hey, man, how you doing? Doing fine. Where are you right now? Well, through the magic of radio and little time delays, I'm at home at this very moment. By the by the time anybody's listening to this, I am in Cairo, Egypt. Will you just stay home for once? Come no, on. I love this. This is the best part of the job. Well, what are you doing over in Egypt? I'll be uh, speaking at the Mideast Developers Conference. Weren't you just speaking at the Mideast Developers Conference? Yes, but that was the one in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh-huh. So that was the north side of the Mediterranean. Now I'm on the south side of the Mediterranean. And this is essentially the Middle Eastern version of TechEd. Yes, exactly. They don't. It, they won't say that, though. Well, no. Uh, TechEd has its own rules, so they do their own thing their own way. And I've also done the Mideast uh, Developers Conference in Pakistan back in June of last year. Speaking of conferences, uh, we have a quite a list that's coming up here about places where we're going to be. Uh, we should sort of maybe rattle some of those dates off. We have an awesome lineup this year already, and this is just the first half of the year. The fall, we're still going to have to work on some more, but I think the first conference we're going to be at, I'm not going to count with the MVP Summit. We're going to be there, but I don't think we're necessarily going to be doing anything live there. No. 
But uh, Dev Connections, Orlando. Right. The week of March uh, 26th. That's right. Yeah. So that's the first one. We're going to be doing .NET Rocks Live uh, at Dev Connections. And looking, really looking forward to that. Always have fun there. Next after that, uh, the week of April 30th, Mix 07 in Las Vegas. Mix 07. Absolutely. Going to be fun there, too. Mix is a, is a, this is the second time they've done it. It's really not just about .NET. It's about the web. Yeah, they, they talk about it being a 72-hour conversation. Yeah. And while it's organized by Microsoft, they're working really hard to bring non-Microsoft-centric people together uh, to talk about web technology. Right. So I'm really looking forward to being there. I think it's going to be a very cool show. Yeah. And uh, we're going to do some podcasting from the floor. We're going to be uh, talking to some people there, so we should get a show out of it at least. Uh, I'm sure, and, and some very interesting people, too. I'm looking forward to seeing the sort of folks that are there. Uh, maybe we'll round up a few new guests, a little more offbeat. Absolutely. And uh, Dev Teach Dev Teach, next. the week of May 14th in Montreal. Yeah. Our friend Jean-René Roy up there in Montreal. We always have a good time when we go there. Yeah. Jean-René knows how to throw a party. It's not the biggest conference in the world, but... It's intimate, and his speaker roster is unbelievable. Yeah, good speakers. You know, if you go to TechEd, trying to get to some of those speakers, it's impossible. There's 10,000 people there. But you take a look at the roster at devteach.com. If there's somebody you'd like to have lunch with, the chances of you being able to pull that off, of really getting up close to, you know, your favorite speaker, way more likely in a place like Montreal with just a few hundred people than in a great big show like Orlando with 10,000. Lunch is a good point because the speakers eat in the same lunchroom that all the attendees eat in. So they're yes, not whisked right. away in some speaker room somewhere. Yeah. And Jean-René has a real knack for keeping everybody closely connected together like that. It's a very intimate show. And following that? Uh, Tech at Orlando. Yep. Back the to Orlando. Week of June 4th. Well, this was the show that was supposed to be in New Orleans, and I was really looking forward to it. But Me too. It just couldn't be made to happen. I don't think there's enough hotel facilities yet. There's not enough flights. They're just not ready for a show that big. I, I hope we get back there soon. Yeah, it's a shame. We'd love to. I love New Orleans. I still love New Orleans. I love the music. I love the food. I love the culture. And uh, I hope it bounces back soon. So that's the roster for the first half of the year. And I'm hoping we'll do just as well in the second half. Second half, we're basically looking at uh, possibly DevReach in Bulgaria, SDC. We're looking at uh, TechEd Europe. We're looking Barcelona. at yeah, in Barcelona again, and uh, all sorts of good stuff. Sure, and I want to try a couple of new shows this year, see if we can get to some more interesting places. All right, stay tuned for that. So, uh, Richard, I understand you have an email out there ready you want to read. I do indeed have an email. It says, uh, hi, Carl and Richard. I just want to say thank you for your really great shows. My name is Andreas Gasbar, and I'm located... Andreas, I hope I got that right. It's a German name, and I'm doing my best. That sounds right. And I'm located in Ingolstadt. This is where the Audi is come from in Germany. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Currently, I'm studying computer science at the Technical University. Right now, I'm writing my diploma thesis. Very cool. I developed an open source web, and I've been building web apps for about nine years, mainly with LAMP, L-A-M-P-P-P, being Perl, PHP, and Python. But I'm very interested in .NET technology. 
There are some really good open source .NET apps out there. Maybe you could do a show with the Paint.NET guys. Interesting idea. Great idea. I don't know how we've left that one on the shelf so long. We got to do that. That's a real success story. Yeah. And it's such a cool product, too. Yep. I read the source, and I think it is a really, really good code, especially the implementation of the file type, which was a completely new topic to me. And I'm not entirely sure I understand what he said there. There's a little ESL challenge, but, hmm. you know, we'll figure it out. Okay. I have a little experience with .NET, only some WinForms and ASP.NET pages. I got a great opportunity that requires some knowledge of ASP.NET, so I'm learning how to do that now. Uh Thanks again for all your shows. I listened to them all in the past two months. Oh, my God. That's 200 plus shows, Andreas. Come on. I seriously hope you're outside doing something. <laughs> to keep me awake while <laughs> writing the 200 plus pages of my thesis. No, he's not. He's in a hole somewhere. That's right. Oh. We're contributing to the, you know... People staying indoors. It's Some not people good. run marathons while they listen to DNR. Other people stay indoors and, and write, wither away. Write theses. <laughs> P.S. I would love some shows about Windows PowerShell or Windows scripting in general. Ah. Didn't you, you do PowerShell? Didn't Scott do PowerShell? Scott, has, Scott Hanselman at Hanselmanets.com loves PowerShell. And we've done just a couple of... We've we've done a few shows already on PowerShell. In fact, I think this week's Hanselmanets, if I'm not mistaken, last week's... So, you know, that's published on Thursdays now. Right. So last Thursdays was an interview with the director of uh, architecture at uh, uh, of PowerShell. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, we got to get a DNR TV together on PowerShell, I think. Oh, absolutely. I don't know that we particularly well served by .NET Rocks, but I think DNR TV be an awesome venue for and it. I think Scott's the guy to do it, too. Sure. Scott Hanselman. We'll try to convince him to do that. So, and I also want to just mention that uh, our friend Greg Brill at Infusion, very cool company down in New York City, is uh, still starving for very talented uh, and maybe even not so talented, but uh, pushy <laughs> developers uh, in New York. And uh, he's willing to, uh, if you pass the test, he's willing to fly you to New York and move you there. And give you a apartment free for a year, rent free for a year. And after that, you have some opportunities available to you, uh, which all can be explained at shrinkster.com slash LNX. And I just got an email from them that two more people have joined the force. Awesome. From listening to .NET Rock. So that means that uh, they really value our listeners, people who are engaged in listening to the show, obviously care about their jobs and care about what they do enough to want to uh, to keep in the fold, and so that's why he's uh, going through us. What so, an amazing opportunity for a developer too! Get to move to New York, have that whole experience. You know, it's only a commitment of a year, right? Yep, and uh, he'll he's also got some perks in there to fly you back home on the weekends now and then if you need to. So just a, a very flexible and very interesting company. A lot of fun too. Uh, when I was down there talking to him, his you know, the building that he's got his offices in there at Infusion, the kitchen is like a 50s diner. Oh, awesome. You we, love that. I know you have oh, your love, diner booth. I love diner memorabilia. So, And there's a great diner right here in town that we always go to after the wee hours of editing. And, uh, you know, the checkerboard floor, the red and white candy stripe stuff, the Coca-Cola stuff all over the place. Just a lot of fun. 
And uh, so that, again, is shrinkshow.com slash LNX. You can read the story there. And uh, good luck. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. I just jumped in the booth to throw this announcement in right before we published the show this week. Uh, and the reason is that after we recorded the show, we got an email from Tim Huckabee that uh, he's looking for some people to help uh, with version two of his Innerology's fantastic Scripps Institute research application for uh, curing cancer. So this is this is a application that um, has been written in .NET 3.0 with Presentation Foundation and Communications Foundation, and it works on Vista, and they're ramping up release two. This, by the way, this application has been demonstrated at, you know, all over the world at keynote speeches, at tech eds, and everything else, and it's an incredible application. So uh, if you go to shrinkster.com slash ls3, you can get all the details, but I'll summarize the points of what they're looking for. He says, we are embarking on release two of the application. I've decided to include four developers from the community in the development team working for Internology virtually. That means you can be anywhere in the world. Here's what we're looking for in a software development engineer. A, well-rounded skills in software application development. B, one who has been working primarily with C-sharp for at least the past two years with an additional minimum three years of Microsoft.NET Framework application development experience and preferably some 2.0 and 3.0 experience. C. Familiarity with object-oriented design. C. Familiarity with object-oriented design methodology. D. A successful candidate will have experience with Windows client application development, .NET Windows Forms, preferably WPF, and web services. And E, desirable to have experience with SharePoint, preferable Office SharePoint Server 2007, Office Document XML, or other custom Office applications. You should also have experience working with a distributed development team. And if that sounds like you, again, go to shrinkster.com slash ls3 to read the entire blog post, reply to the email, and you could be working on a great application, very visible, to help cure cancer. Go get them. All right, Richard, now let's uh, get to our guest, shall we? Jesse Liberty, Microsoft.net MVP, is the best-selling author of O'Reilly Media's Programming ASP.net, Programming C-Sharp, and with Alex, the forthcoming Programming.net 3. He has also written over a dozen books and numerous articles on web and object-oriented programming. And Jesse maintains a technical blog, an opinion blog, and a political blog. He's president of Liberty Associates Incorporated, where he provides contract programming, consulting, and on-site training in .NET. And Alex Horowitz spent time at both Next Computer and Apple in the 1990s. Currently, he provides software engineering leadership and programming to clients seeking to develop enterprise applications leveraging the Model View controller design pattern and reusable frameworks. Welcome, guys. Incredibly happy to be here. Thank you. As am I. Now, uh, Jesse. Yes, sir. Let's identify your voice first, because it's hard to tell. You guys kind of have the you know similar High voices. And squeaky and uh, <laughs> rather condescending. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you're f you're from the Boston area, right? Oh, thank you, because I've been working so hard to hide that New York accent that I'm. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that you think so. Are you are you in Boston or New York? 
I'm, I am currently in Boston suburbs. Originally, I'm from Brooklyn, and I talk like this. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I know I've seen you around the, you know, the Boston user groups many yes, times, sir. so I figured that you, hi- you know, hibernated out there. Yes, I do. And it is winter, and we're beginning to go into our shell. Yeah, and, and you know, this is what? We're recording this January 18th, and it's just beginning to get cold in New England. It's yeah, ridiculous. January 18th, and that was the temperature today, actually. Yeah, 18. It was ridiculous that we've, you know, it's like beach weather. I've been wearing shorts. Yeah. So, that's just, last week, 18 today. And as they say in New England, if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute. Wait a minute. It'll change, right. And Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, are you in Boston, too, or are you located elsewhere? I'm actually about, I'd say, a mile from where Jesse is. Okay. Um, and... We're just outside of Boston, but I grew up actually in California in the Silicon Valley. Oh, all right. Good enough. Where where exactly? Um, I've lived in Berkeley and Palo Alto and Saratoga. Nice. But he moved out here because he wanted to deal with computers. Yeah, I married into the East Coast. Don't worry. <laughs> ah. So you've only been on the East Coast for, what, 10 years? Oh, you know, 10 years now. And what do you think? Um, it gets cold in the winter. Yeah, well, yeah. But no, I like it out here. Although I'd say that people are a lot less relaxed. They are a little more hyper. Yeah. yeah. And everybody. We call it productive villains. <laughs> and it's so everybody, too. It's, it's not just, you know, it's not just the, 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 the white-collar workers. It's all the way down to the UPS driver. That's right. There's a special brand of New England customer service, which implies that you should be happy to be served at all. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, you should try England sometime if you, if you want to experience non-service. You should try New York. Ain't on the shelf, we ain't got it. Yeah. Okay, now that we've bashed most of the country and all of our <laughs> listeners. All right, so the two of you have written this book together, or is it a forthcoming book, or what's the status of it? We are in the process of writing a book called Programming.net 3, which is a follow-on to a shortcut that we did, a PDF book that was an introduction to .NET 3. This will be a thorough programmer's book on all of the aspects of .NET 3, and we have chosen to include in our definition of .NET 3 AJAX as well. Um, okay. That's consistent with our theory of .NET 3, which... Um, is either our brilliant insight or our crackpot theory of .NET 3, depending <laughs> on how you look at it. It seemed to us that Microsoft was kind of merging desktop and web in a way that hadn't been done before, um, in spite of their previous lawsuits insisting that it had been done. Um, they really have got it tied so closely together that it is easy to see how you write an application once and it plays out wherever in the future. Right. Are you seeing a lot of people still still struggling with should I write a web app or a Windows app? I got an IM from somebody just yesterday, as a matter of fact, who's asking me the same question that I you know I thought we that was like last year's discussion. Right. Well, we see, we see two major themes in .NET three that um, really become the theme of our book. One is that .NET 3 is going to facilitate something that we've all been saying for, oh, at least a decade, which is that we want to build three-tier or N-tier 
applications. And one of the themes of our book is that .NET previously had um, not particularly facilitated doing so, that if you built a .NET application until now, it was very easy to build essentially a two-tier application, presentation and everything else. Yeah. And that .NET 3 truly facilitates, almost insists on a true three-tier application. And it, and it helps with that, it facilitates that, and it, um, it, it almost requires that, which is a good thing, we think. You're really so, talking about the limitations of web services and remoting, aren't you? Really? Well, that and also that if you look at your typical ASP.NET application in 2, uh, 2.0 application or your typical WinForms application, it's just very, very easy to have your front end and then have your back end and that's it. And if you're, if you're sloppy, they're one thing. You know, you, yeah. you have your front end and your code behind. And if you're meticulous, then you have your front end and your data source. But that, that's pretty much all. Whereas with .NET 3, it's much cleaner to have um, a, a cleaner separation. And in fact, we find that with building .NET 3 applications, it's even easier to often to start with the, with the business model and then build up to the presentation and down to the persistence model. So suddenly .NET is, in fact, facilitating that tiered perspective that we've all been talking about, but not necessarily really building. So that's one theory that we're pursuing. Well, um, just to ask a question about that, um, when you say start with the business model, are you talking about just whipping out Visual Studio and starting to code? Or are you talking about uh, workflow or foundation? Um, yes. What? Yes, I'm, yes, I am. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> yes to all of that. Yeah. I mean, it depends. It depends on the you know on your project, and it depends on the size of your project, and it depends on your druthers. Yeah. Um, I I have worked in and on projects that have been fairly formal OO projects, and I've worked on fairly informal and on agile projects. I tend to lean towards the get it working and keep it working mindset, Alex, I think, tends to work a little bit more on the kind of agile uh, perspective, if I'm not speaking out of turn for Alex. Um, and, we, and we can get into those details about, but, but I do think that with .NET 3, all of those are um, easier to make real and to, and to put into the implementation and to keep separate layers separate and clean mm. than was true in, in, in .NET 2, which is not to slam .NET 2. I mean, it was, a, it, it was and remains a phenomenal um, uh, development environment. But what I'm trying to draw a distinction is that much of what I've read about .NET 3 has been from what I think of as a silo perspective. That is to yeah. say... Um, here's how you do one silo. Here's how you do the new UI. Here's how you do the new communications. Here's how you do workflow. And I think the thing that brings all of that together, the unifying piece to that, is there's some underlying patterns and underlying design architecture 
that this facilitates. Another example of that would be SOA, would be service-oriented architecture. And you see that very, very clearly as Microsoft walks away from what I think of as its transitional approach to web services, treating web services as remote procedure calls, yeah. to its new perspective, which is more of a contract-based, SOA-based approach to web services which is very, very different from how we thought about web services when they were first introduced. Right. So we're seeing more of an integration in .NET 3 of underlying architectural patterns. Now, before I really scare all the working programmers, oh, my God, <laughs> let me stay away from this, it is a very natural and very easy transition because it, you don't have to start with high-level architectural understanding. Mm. What happens is that you can start with building applications, and what you end up doing is very, very naturally building better applications because the architectural principles are built into the tools and the language. So it's, so it's, it's a very natural, very, very um, soft way of implementing those uh, architectural patterns rather than hitting you over the head with them and saying, do it right, do it right. It just sort of makes it easy. It facilitates it. It, it, it makes it a gentle ramp to doing so. Yeah. Whereas I think in the past, you were sort of fighting the tools to make that work. And the tools were, the gentle ramp was actually to not do that, to just you know stick it all in one place and, and let her rip. Well, Alex, do you have uh, any differences of opinion about that, or you pretty much go along with what Jesse says? So I came from a very different world, right? And um, the you know our our Bible at Next was the you know Gang of Four's design pattern book, right? And I had popped my head out of the Next Apple world in two thousand one to look at um, kind of the first implementation of .NET and decide whether whether I wanted to work that hard at programming again. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. You yeah. were still in Next up till 2001? No, I was. Next got bought by Apple in right. 96, and I was still in Apple in 2001. Okay. So you were with the Next all the way through. I wrote it down to the bitter end, right? Wrote it down wow. to the bitter end. I thought it was brilliant, personally. Actually, we, you know, we, um, I think we were very, we were surprised and happy to go to Apple. I think many of us who had spent a lot of time working on enterprise software, had thought that Oracle would have been a better acquisition partner for us and our careers, because trying to sell enterprise software from '96 to 2001 with the uh, Apple logo behind you was a you know was a bit of a stretch. It was a bit yeah. of an oxymoron by some people's <laughs> standards. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So in 2001, when I popped my head out of the uh, Apple world, I, I called Jesse and I said, "Hey, I'd, I'd like to get caught up on this .NET stuff. Um, looks pretty interesting." And I spent about six weeks playing with it. And I said, oh, programming is still too hard in this world. I'm going back to the easy life. Um, but then when I popped up again in uh, this last year, in 05, um, Jesse kind of gave me a, a walkthrough and a tour of what was coming. And, and it was like, oh, okay, this is something that I understand. The tools are now supporting the way I think about software, which yeah. is a very, like I said, Gang of Four design patterns, model view controller view of the world. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. We finally caught up to the way you were thinking in the next 10 years ago. Right. And, and, 
And in many ways, I think Microsoft has surpassed what what we did at Next in terms of, I mean, there's so many robust pieces of the um, the foundations and the framework yeah. that you have now in .NET three, and um, right, you know, if you look, one great example is of course the New York Times newsreader. If you've used yep. that uh, application, you know, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, go to the New York Times and download it; it's free. But when you realize that, you know, the New York Times reader is essentially a very simple component that that Microsoft offers off the shelf with some customizations that they did to make it work for the New York Times. But you can have components that provide that rich level of interaction with text and media, and it's kind of out of the box. And that's exactly the kind of thing that a lazy programmer like myself likes to see. I'd like to mention that uh, this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications. And you can find them online at www.telerik.com. Well, you know, back when we started this show, Alex, we were talking about, you know, the goo, the guts, the, the, the low-level stuff that they've rewritten from scratch, the way Com was sort of screwed up and didn't have much of a future, and they, they sort of rewrote the whole component-sharing model, and then, you, you know, talking about the framework and all that nice goo and stuff inside, and then, you know, the tools uh, with subsequent revs of uh, Visual Studio just got better and better and better. The data binding in 2005, Visual Studio 2005, is a really good example of that. Um, that it that now it, you know with with .NET 3.0 and and all this high level stuff, it, it is actually uh, morphing into this very sort of you know. I think this is what you're saying. I'm just sort of repeating what you're saying, but now we're talking about high level tools, high level programming, it with a very sophisticated back end. Right. You can focus a lot of time and energy now on solving customers' problems as opposed right. to solving how you're going to solve the customers' right. problems. Working around the tools and stuff. Right. Yeah. The two places where I would argue that they're still in transition and that even with .NET 3, Microsoft is clearly in transitional technology. The most obvious is in terms of moving towards truly eliminating the distinction between web and desktop. And to return to your earlier question, um, it's clear that Microsoft has made a commitment somewhere, not that anyone has articulated this officially, but you can't miss it. If, If they have said that we're going to build desktop applications in which we're going to give you a markup language, XAML, that is isomorphic, that maps perfectly to the CLR classes, and that you can use declaratively or programmatically. Now, that is clearly the first step on the road to merging the way you declare your presentation layer for the desktop and your presentation layer for the web. I mean, it's, it, it will soon be silly to have XAML and ASP controls. 
there, there, it just makes too much sense to to to, to merge using XAML or some second-generation XAML and the ASP controls and having a single way to declare things for the desktop, for the web, and for phones, and for any other presentation layer. So I, I believe that XAML is a transitional technology, a, a beautiful, wonderful tr technology in its own right, but transitional in the sense that eventually you would imagine that you would have a toolkit that would be... Um, use the same markup vocabulary for various different platforms. And, and the second place that I think that they're clearly transitional is in making the move to allowing the programmer to work with data in a purely object-oriented way and then having ADO.NET version X make all of the mappings for you through some kind of more sophisticated data schema so that you can have, um, right now we have tables and relations and we have uh, strongly typed data sets, but we don't have the ability to say um, employee dot address dot phone dot area code equals 978. And clearly they're on the way towards doing that. Well, there are lots then, of RM tools out there, though, aren't yes, there? Yes, but, 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 but Microsoft owns SQL Server, and Microsoft owns ADO.net, and Microsoft owns C Sharp, and C Sharp 3 is coming, and Link is there. I mean, Microsoft is clearly laying in the groundwork to do all that. Mm -hmm. So, so well, my only point is I don't think we have arrived at where Microsoft is going. Right. But but we're clearly on the way and and so in that sense I think .net 3 is a transitional technology still. That said, I think that they have put a lot of things on the table that are dramatic improvements over where we are today. And mm. my only final point on that transition issue is that um right now they have not yet opened their kimono about what they're doing about ASP. And so ASP.NET 2 is in a funny position because while AJAX is there, um, well, web services are really supplanted in many ways by WCF. And we know Workus is coming, but we don't know how that's going to affect ASP.NET. We know that WCF everywhere is... Um, excuse me, WPF everywhere is coming but isn't quite there, kind of, sort of. So there's some, you know, there's some uncertainty out there about what's what. And so I think the discongruity really comes when you see WPFE on one side and, and Atlas on the other. Right. Right. So yeah. which one do they mean? Right. But isn't it always been their way to just give you as many paths to the same, uh, you know, sort of result? As as you can, I mean, it, you see that everywhere with their tools. They're not they're not trying to just pick the right technology. They're trying to build them all. Whatever can be built shall be built, and whatever the users use more, that's what they choose to use. Right? I don't I don't know as if uh, everybody seems to be looking for the should we do this or should we do that or should we do this or should we do that? Should we use WPFE or should we use Atlas? Well, why not try both? 
right? Well, I think there's a difference between having a spectrum and having chaos. We clearly want to have a spectrum. You want it. You want when you get there, when you get to the end point, or when you get to a reasonable. There's no end point. When you get to a reasonable point of stability, you want to be able to turn to your client and say, "We have a spectrum here that ranges on one end from a pure desktop application with all of its richness and power to a pure take anywhere web only." And and then we have many steps along the way where you can have more and more things happening on the client with greater and greater richness, and here's what you pay for it, and here's what you get for it. But when you have three things that do exactly the same thing using three disparate technologies, and, and Microsoft isn't making clear which one they're going to go forward with, then well, it cause confusion for, tech, for, the, for the program. What, what's wrong with them going forward with all three? I think you're asking an awful lot of the of programmers in terms of how much can one programmer learn and master. I, yeah, I didn't mean that. I mean, I mean, what's wrong with Microsoft going? I mean, they're a big company. Every every department is like its own little company, right? So, if they have the resources to go, why why does Microsoft have to pick one? Why why wouldn't why isn't it a good idea for them to? put out as many technologies as possible and just let people decide which to use? Actually, I think the, the answer to that is, is kind of, you know, you, you, you'd really want to hedge, um, which is, in a sense, what Microsoft is doing. Hedge till you find the thing that's the most popular. The, the benefit, however, to kind of pointing a direction is you're going to allow people to learn how to develop the things that they want to develop faster rather than having a hunt and peck and make choices that really aren't true choices. It's just there's three different ways of doing X, Y, Z. Pick one. I think most programmers would prefer to know that the preferred way of doing X, Y, Z is this. And there are these two other ways if you want to. But we would, we would suggest you do it this way because this is the thing that we're most likely to support going forward in the future. Yeah, I guess I guess my response to that is, and I'm I may be smoking crack here, but my response is that um, I think that all of these technologies have a, a place for a particular type of application. Um, somebody who's going to be doing a lot of scanning and barcode reading and interacting with Office, they're going to want a, a smart client application deploy with click once. And if somebody's going to have Somebody wants to support people on Macintoshes and whatever. They're going to write a web application. They're going to use Ajax, if you know, or WPFE if that's the way they want to go. And if they want to use WPFE and Atlas, what's wrong with that? Well, so okay. I mean, I can't. I, I don't. I don't. I don't know as if. I mean, I think it's very natural for humans to say one of these has to be dominant. We should always use this, and I just don't think that's true. Well, let me. Let's just draw a distinction between. I want to draw one distinction here. I think having a spectrum where you can say, look, if you want to be on the web, we're going to give you the ability to be on the web or have some client side using Ajax is a great thing. And if you want to be more on the desktop because you can afford to be, but you need to draw from the web, there's no reason for Microsoft and there's every reason, there's no reason for Microsoft not to do that. There's every reason for Microsoft to do that. On the other hand, if Microsoft says, we have two separate technologies for enabling web applications to have 
client-side behavior. And we're going to put both of those out, and we're going to give you no hint as to which of those is better. They're completely different, but they both do the same thing, which is you're on the web and you have something running on the client. That there is a good reason for Microsoft not to do that. I, I don't. And, and, I don't agree and, and that let they me try don't. Try to make the case why they shouldn't. I don't agree briefly. that they do the same thing. Well, I okay. Then they, if they don't do the same thing, that's one thing. But if you're making the case that oh, you know, we have two different departments and they have totally different ways of doing the same thing, that's going to be a problem for developers. Now, so one of the things developers are asking is, well, what's the difference between AJAX and WPFE? They appear to do the same thing, which is take a web application and give you client-side richness. And so, so, so if they don't do the same thing, then, then, then there's a need to clarify what is the difference. Yeah, I, th- it, I think that's basically where the issue lies, clarification. Um, and, you know, AJAX is a, is a technology for, for doing stuff with JavaScript on the client, and WPFE is a technology for doing stuff with a scaled-down version of .NET, which is not JavaScript on the client. So... The, the difference is, uh, and, and WPFE uses AJAX, right? So WPFE is just sort of uh, AJAX kicked up a notch visually. Yeah, I, I right? think I misunderstood what you were after because I, I was thinking in my own head about Windows Forms and WPF applications. Well, that's WPF. Right. Well, yeah. so, but what I was thinking was, I remember when Jesse told me Windows Forms was a great thing and I should learn it, and this was back in one, and this is really going to be the way to do things, and it, and it was a vast improvement over how yeah. you used to write Windows applications. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, .NET 3 comes along, and you can still do Windows Forms applications if you want to, but seems pretty clear that the general trend is going to be towards XAML-based Windows, right? Well, let's, we don't know that yet, but uh, yeah, there is um, the expression suite is coming out, and that, that proves, yeah, that's clearly where they're going. So, We're not there yet, but that's where right. they're going. But it would be helpful if Microsoft would say, you know, guys, the Windows, Windows form stuff is great, but down the road, we're really going to probably tend to obsolete that because we think we have a much better way of accomplishing the same task. Well, well, first of all, yeah, I I don't think Microsoft obsoletes things. They they don't they <laughs> don't just true. say, "Okay, your Windows Forms applications are not going to work anymore." Right. Yeah, what they do is they will, you know, they're going to continue to support them, of course. Mm-hmm. But um but more people, I think it, it has to do with what people te- are going to use. And right. that doesn't mean that all the other stuff goes away. I mean, that's the nature of innovation, right? It's not right away. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I haven't run a, a, a DOS Zork game in a long while. Right, but if you wanted to, you still could. I probably could, although I'm not sure I could run top view, but okay. <laughs> yeah, there's a um, lot of things that don't run anymore. I mean, it, stuff right. does go by the wayside. Sure. Microsoft right. really has drawn a line in the sand uh, with Vista and, right. of course, .NET 3.0 and saying, here is our new approach to UI where we're harnessing a lot more of the horsepower of video cards. Windows is now finally running in a real graphical mode, so you're going to be able to do more of these things. And along the way, we have to provide an alternative to this sort of GDI 32 way we've been drawing on the screen, so you get all this new capability. And I was actually, personally, I was disappointed that they did not come out with their new version of Office in a... 
XAML-based, WPF-based version because I think that they missed an opportunity to show off the the benefits of that. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just a matter of timing there. Yeah, they wanted to ship both at the same time. It was a matter of timing, and, and so there's a two year, there's going to be a two year lag in the uptake, and and it, I I I think there's an opportunity for some company, some large company, to take one of their major applications that people use all the time and build it in WPF. And knock people's socks off. Yeah, for two years. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, this is for what we're missing: years. is the great WPF app. Where is it? We don't have one. Right. There is no killer WPF app right now. Well, and yeah. The New York Times sure. newsreader is pretty good. It's well, pretty yes, good, but yeah, but, but it's not a killer app. I mean, it reads right. the New York Times. That's what it reads, right? No, but I mean, saying it got me reading the New York Times again. Yeah. Which is something that you know, I'd, I'd given up on my New York Times. Papers stacked up in the driveway. I felt guilty, so I canceled my subscription. I just didn't have time to read. And then I get hold of this thing, and all of a sudden, I'm reading the New York Times again. Right. Well, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be so. I wouldn't be so harsh on where's the WPF apps because WPF just came out, right? That's right. Right. So. But there, there will be a killer yeah, WPF will. app. There will. It's be. not clear there'll be a killer WCF app because what WCF is go- where people are going to really see the benefits of the Windows community. Um, uh, communication Foundation, where they're going to see that contract-based benefit and SOA benefit is not going to be as visible yeah. to the consumer. That's going to be that's plumbing that's going to be seen at the enterprise level in terms of cost savings, maintenance, long-term plan, and so right, on. Right, right. And 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 in terms of um, in terms of Windows, what I would love to call WWF, except apparently the Worldwide <laughs> Foundation objects. Uh, but in terms of, of workflow, there is a place where I think that's probably the technology where there's a poverty of imagination problem, where mm. we don't really understand yet how that's going to be used. And is that going to just fizzle, or is that going to become central to a whole new business layer of, for applications. Yeah, that brings me back to a question that stuck in my mind when you were talking before, which is, is it is it really hard to be a generalist anymore? I mean, Jesse, you seem to be a sort of a generalist. You've written a lot of books on different technologies around .NET and VB and C Sharp and all these other things. It, do you find it really difficult? Well, it's the general. The definition of generalist has been progressively narrowing, right? Yeah. In, in, 19, in 1980. Four, when I went back to computers after, you know, I started uh, to become like an old Dilbert, right? You had you had zeros, we had to use O's. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I started in 1971 and playing with punch tape, and I hated it. And then I went back sort of, you know, in the late 70s. But by 84, when I started playing with PCs, you really could be a general. You could know everything there was to know about PCs from, yeah. from, from, from the chip all the way through every application. And then by the time Win 3.1 came out, you were already being forced to, to start to narrow. By the time um, the early 90s came, you had to make a decision as to platform, right? You remember the platform wars. And, and so by the time the late 90s came, you were now being forced into... Uh, are you a Microsoft developer or a not Microsoft developer? 
And and so for a while, I used to talk with friends. They would say, well, what do you do? And I'd say, well, you know, there's kind of the Microsoft world with C++, with C Sharp, or .NET, or whatever. And then there's all the other not Microsoft, of Java, and and they would say things to me like, well, do you, what do you know about PHP? Well, that, you know, that's a different world. Well, now what's happening is it's hard to be, even within the .NET world, set aside all of Microsoft's other products, even within the .NET world, being a generalist is becoming very, very difficult. And, and even just um, this book of saying, well, we don't want to build a silo book. I mean, there will be, then people are going to want a book on WPF and a book on WCF and so on. But is there room in the market for a book on .NET 3? Is that a topic you can cover in a thousand pages in a meaningful way for working developers that's going to not be a manager's book, that's going to be a programmer's book and give programmers enough to really get their heads around .NET 3 and do productive things. So what's the answer? And I, Well, we obviously strongly believe the answer is yes, but, <laughs> but, but it's hard, I though. would have to say yeah. just barely. And it's taking, I would say the amount of work it's taking to do that is higher than it used to take. There's an old line, I wish I remember who the person was who said, I apologize for writing a 12-page letter. I didn't have time to write a shorter one. And, <laughs> That's awesome. And and that you know yeah. that's the work for us is to is it would be easy to write a two a much easier to write a 2000 page book on 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 .net 3. But to write a meaningful book in a thousand pages or so that's going to to give you the the true story, the meaningful information about .net 3. Now, the first edition may may not have quite as much because .NET 3 is a, you know, is a moving target. But as we learn about .NET 3 and as we learn best practices and so on, keeping that in a single volume is going to require getting to the kernel of what working developers need to know. Mm. And the piece that we try, and I'm not trying to sell the book here as much as talk about the sort of the, 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 the task ahead of us or the, or the, or the, hurdle we're trying to get over is not to um, create a reference. I think Microsoft is getting better and better at providing the, um, how do I look this up and find that little piece of information? or How do I mm -hmm. find the API? Yeah. But what, what I think working developers want when they make the transition is, please tell me the story of this new technology so that I can figure out what it is I need to know in the order I need to know it so that I can get my brain around this and understand this and have that aha experience repeatedly about these different pieces and figure out which pieces I care about and when I need to know about them. And doing that and integrating all of these pieces together, that's the challenge. This, and that's this, why this sounds a data. lot like an architectural book then. It's when you're planning your, your .NET 3.0 strategy, it's your book that'll help you with that plan. Well, no, thank you. I would love it. I, you know, I think that would be a great book, but that's not our book. Our okay. book is targeted right at the guy who's just been charged with writing a program and building a program. And yes, we are. the architecture is, is much more implicit. Our book is, what do I need to know to build 
a program? What pieces of the technology do I need to know? How do I get started? How do I write it? You know, what pieces can I ignore? What are the core pieces? And how do I make this, can I say damn on your program? How do I make this damn thing work? <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, if I've got nine different kinds of, of panels, which are the panels I care about? What do they do and how do I make them work? And so, you know, because often I have the experience when I'm reading something like this, I have, I have two different unpleasant experiences. One is the, what the devil are they talking about experience? <laughs> but the other, which is equally difficult, is you, you sort of read it and you're nodding and you're smiling. You go, oh, yeah, I get that. And then you open up the development environment and you don't have a clue where to start. Yeah. And, I, and I think the only way you overcome that is to tell the story of it in a way that people integrate the mindset so that they can write code. And then, by the way, you have examples with working code because I don't know about how you program, but the way I program is I start with somebody's working sample and adapt it. Yeah, otherwise I, you get the empty class syndrome, like the empty, the blank page. Oh, my God, right. where do I start? You know? Right, exactly. I haven't written an original line of code in 15 years. <laughs> Cut and paste inheritance? Well, like it's cognitive inheritance. inheritance. I just coined that term. Can I get a trademark on that? What did you say? Cognitive inheritance? Cognitive inheritance. Yeah, that's pretty good. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Let me ask you guys both a question. We'll start with you, Jesse, because uh, I know that you guys, it's obvious that you guys think a lot about how software should be developed and what the deficiencies are in in the perfect world. And, and I, you know, feel free to travel forward in time here. Um, what would, I have no what choice. Would, I haven't figured out how to travel backward in time. What would the ultimate, uh, <laughs> all right, travel faster forward in time okay. than you normally do? How's that? Okay. Um, what would, what can you envision in your lifetime as like the, the, the way software should be written? Um, you know, the, I have this fantasy about, you know, walking up to a computer program and having a conversation with it. Like I would sit down with a consultant and then ching and then it spits out the application that I want. But, um, you know, Bar, you know, foregoing that fantasy, what, uh, you know, what what would you think a good, uh, uh, an ultimate experience of software, writing software might entail? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Yeah. Um, well, I have to say that um, one of the things that I definitely react to is that I can imagine a time not all that far in the future where coding will be, or writing software, will be so different from what it is today that it will be a lot less fun for me, because I like writing code. And I think that there will come a time where writing software will be much more a job of design and much less a job of um, what I think of as coding. On that said, I look forward to a few steps more down the road where the tools help in terms of getting the syntax 
and the plumbing out of the way. Yeah. And so, for example, right now, there, the, the, the IDE is getting better and better in terms of IntelliSense and, and, and in terms of flagging errors and so on in anticipating and showing you what the issue is. And you can certainly imagine an IDE that is proactively um, avoiding errors for you, fixing errors for you. Um, one of the things that I just do not understand why Microsoft hasn't done yet is I would like a switch that says if I have defined this identifier with a particular spelling in, in a C-based language, I would like to flip the switch on that while I'm coding, um, I've, ident- you know, I've created this identifier with a particular um, capitalization, and then I write it again with a different capitalization. Could you please fix that for me? You know, it's fine with me that you insist on being a a, a, uh, a case-sensitive language. You're not a VB no programmer, are you? What? You're not a VB programmer, are you? Well, yes, VB. I'm 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 bilingual. You know, i my <laughs> pet theory is that C sharp and VB don't exist. That what Microsoft did is they came out with a language called IL, and then they stuck a syntax on it that looked vaguely like C or Java and called it C-sharp, and then they stuck another syntax that looked vaguely like VB, and they called it VB.net. Um, but there really is only one language. So, yes, I, and I do think it's important that programmers be bilingual, and I won't get into the wars about which is better, and I won't get into the political discussion about why is it that C-sharp programmers tend to make more money, and I won't even get into the big political discussion about should C-sharp be case-sensitive, although I did write an article about that on one of my opinion pieces, and I sent you the... Um, well, I'm, I'm glad link. you're not getting into yes. it. Uh, so that's... Right, I'm not going to get into that, <laughs> but certainly the IDE could give that to you. There's no reason it can't. It does in VB. Um, to answer your question more directly, I can imagine, certainly as a first step, an IDE that fixes all the obvious um, syntactic issues. Now, can you imagine working with larger building blocks, um, more of the sort of 4GL perspective? I guess I can imagine that. Can I imagine a conversation, um, not, I know you don't mean verbal, but a, a kind no, of... No, I do mean verbal. Oh, you do mean verbal? Absolutely. Ah, uh, well, if I can have a verbal conversation with my computer, I'm not sure that it's that it's programming that I'll be talking to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to. I don't even want to go there, man. I mean, if we want to go there, then you know, then my fantasy. Uh, you still with me? <laughs> yeah. Then my fantasy uh... is you know, a subcutaneous <laughs> implant so that I can talk to my computer with subvocalization. We can all, you know. So now I have access to the internet. Uh, directly, so I have virtual omniscience, and um, I can also have um, IM, right? So now I've got, what do I have then? Then I've got uh, virtual um, telepathy. Yeah. You know, that those those are fun things. But now we're into, uh, you know, um, uh, Gibson land. We're into... Uh, yeah, the original cyberspace that right, Gibson exactly. was writing about. Yeah, we're well into cyberpunk at that point. And, and if I still have teeth in my head, I'll be, you know, enjoying that tremendously. And hopefully with nanotechnology, you know, I'll, when I'm 170 years old, we can have this. Yeah, this uh, is sort of what I wanted to avoid. I mean, you know, the, the, I, those things are, you know, science fiction right now. But, but I mean, you know, who knows what's going to happen by the time you're talking to your computer. But, you know, certainly... Actually, I, you know, that's, um, it's interesting in science fiction, but I think if you look at the, the progression of uh, where we've been, right, um, 
starting with assembler, and where we are now, um, which is we have large amounts of building materials built for us for use in our own construction projects, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And the time that has elapsed has been relatively small. Yeah. Um, I was just talking to someone. I sit on a school committee, um, technology committee, right? And in my mind's eye, somewhere along the lines, I imagine that computers are not what we think of them as today. In fact, computers just blend into the design of our environment. And I imagine that programming is a very different game at that point. Um, you know, mostly rule-based, mostly dealing with uh, pre-existing blocks, smart blocks that know how to um, figure out and how to configure themselves to deal with the specific situations mm. that are involved in computing. Most yeah. of the hard problems having been solved um, I think talking to your computer and asking for a solution to a, a given problem is probably within reason in our lifetime. And and maybe, um, with the exception of folks that are building building blocks, uh, there aren't very many you know day-to-day custom software programmers out there anymore. Well, well let's go. Let's let's just challenge two of those things. The things that we think of as hard things today having been solved. My guess is that there'll be new hard things. I mean. We've heard predictions of the end of physics before, and the end of chemistry before, and the end of biology, and you know, the end of the end of the hard questions in computer science. My guess is when we solve those hard questions, we'll just discover that that opens up new hard questions. Um, and then there's always the problem of AI being just ten years away for the past thirty years. Um, well, that was Marvin Minsky's fault, wasn't it? Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, he you know he thought it was a summer project to solve the vision problem. Right, and uh, poor Mr. Moore ended up making his life's work. Right, and he mm. just barely got that, you know, the computational vision book down before he uh, passed away. And we're still using that as a foundation for vision, which we still haven't solved as a problem. Mm. I used to have a button that said OS two version n plus one, the real OS two. <laughs> and and I'm, I mean, I'm I'm willing to believe it. I'll tell you one thing that I that I do constantly remind myself, which is I read the book Gates by the um, editor from PC Magazine, whose name escapes me at the moment, I think it's Zachman, and, and it's, a, it's a great biography of Bill Gates. And one, but one of the things that stands out in that book is that every single prediction that the leaders of this industry made, every step of the way, every single one of them, was wrong. And, the, mm. and their inaccuracy was directly proportional to how far out they predicted and it approximated 100% as they got to more than four to six months. Hmm. So, 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 you know, it's... What, what, let me just challenge that real quick. What about Moore's Law? We found that Moore's Law yes, held. Right? that's correct. That is that the one law, the one exception? No, it's not an exception, because when you, when you predict things like that, when you predict the, the, the rate of change or the rate of, 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 of improvement, you're going to be right. But when you predict what we're going to do with it, and when you predict what, what the environment's going to be like or how people are going to react to it or how we're going to use things. Who was it? Was it Watson at, 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 is that the right name, at IBM, who said he can't imagine, in the 50s, who said he can't yeah. imagine the need for more than 50 computers worldwide? Yeah, yeah. it was five. And it's, <laughs> five? it's somewhat okay. of a misattribution. I mean, he didn't really say that, but the hits who is told has said that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a great, you know, 
There's some president who said, nobody likes an eyewitness who'll always screw up a great story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a great apocryphal story, true or not. Right, I think my, my point was really that you're in, in many ways you can't imagine what computers will be like 20 years from now. I find it silly that we teach our kids PowerPoint in school, knowing that when I was in school, you know, we didn't have PowerPoint, but I seem to be able to use PowerPoint just fine as an adult. I wish they'd and, stop teaching it, actually. I want people yeah. to stop using it. Doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. So, right. You don't want to use it now, and they certainly won't need it then. That's just right. stop and, it. And so when you say, in the future, what will programming be like? While I can't imagine... Specifically, what well, you know, I'm not like. asking you to be accurate. I just, right. I just want I to can, hear what you think. You know, I, what your thoughts are. Yeah. So I imagine a world without programmers. How's that? I mean, not in the in the sheer numbers that we have them today. I view it as kind of like you know, in in the early part of the 20th century, two thirds of the country were farmers. You know, I t- I know where you're going with this, and I tend to believe I tend to agree with you, and I, I've even said this much to the ridicule and the horror of my uh, constituents. <laughs> That, uh, that, but we you all know. want to keep our jobs, you know? Well, I mean, if you think about the nature of programming, and it's almost a dirty little secret we don't like to think of, but, you know, we're replacing people with, with software. Mm. And, and a lot of it isn't because companies want to be more efficient. It's because they don't want to pay more people, right? Right. right. So, I, we, we did the it, same thing with the steam engine and then the same thing with uh, uh, a bunch of other technologies. Oh, sure. Technology invariably replaces right. those. Sure, there, there absolutely. There may be people so, called programmers. It's hard to believe that they will be sitting down and writing code. Right. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. It's hard to believe that humans will be writing code for much longer. Yeah. In the sense that we write code, in the sense of conditional logic and writing, you know, coding statements. And, and, and if you think about folks who do design work, site design and development work, that job, I can imagine, continuing for quite some time. But that's a different job. Now, whether the code will be written by coding modules or whether, you know, I don't know. And certainly we'll have a, tra- a transitional period where there'll be, assist, you know, it'll be greatly assisted by software. And then maybe it'll just be done by software. And whether it's done by folks here or internationally, that change we're already seeing. And there's a great deal of um, fear-induced racism in the way we deal with outsourcing of uh, software development. And, And, you know, there's all sorts of things said about what the quality of the outsourcing. But I've looked at a lot of outsourced code done by people who bill at rates that make my um, make me quail, and, and they're writing some tremendously professional code. So long before we're replaced in terms of our day-to-day programming skills by automation, we'll also be looking at people who are going to commoditize that skill. Mm. in many ways. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't have work to do because there's much more to writing software than just writing the code. Mm. Uh, but that, you know, we've we've wandered far from our original Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alex, what's next on your uh, to-do list for after, after this book is published? Well, Jesse and I actually spent a lot of time working together um, 
on consulting engagements outside of uh, the book work. Um, what you know, the, the the things that I'm focused on right now are you know kind of building .NET three applications. I think it's a, a very exciting time to be a Microsoft developer, especially for a guy who spent most of his life being a Next and Apple developer. Yeah. Um, it, this is, you know, you can see where Microsoft has taken the time and attention to craft both um, a development environment and a set of tools and frameworks that make developing the kinds of applications that the marketplace is asking for very much easier. And it's nice to be on a giant platform. Yeah. Are are you using all three pillars of the uh, of .NET 3.0? At this point, yeah. Um, it, uh, in the, I mean, we're we're just both Jesse and I are ramping up our um, our workflow uh, knowledge at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, you can you can see. I think Jesse's right. There's a poverty of imagination about how to use it. Um, It's primarily because it's it's well, it's inviting in its ease of use. It is, and it seems to be very powerful in its ability to kind of direct the flow of a, of a program or a workflow. Um, it's still got some stuff there that needs some exploring. You know, back to how hard is it to be a generalist? It's really hard to be a generalist across yeah. this entire stack, and we're working very long hours to make sure that we're the generalists who can tell you that, you know, the story about how to best make use of this stuff. Um, and I think when we sat down to write this book, we didn't think it was going to be that, that labor intensive in terms of the amount of time we spend reading and exploring and tinkering and, you know, building, building sample applications that, you know, when you see them, you say, aha, I see how this directly maps to, my problem that I'm trying to solve. And that was really our goal with the book was to, to give people... So this is, you're going to own several books about .NET 3. Some of them are going to be silo books. And I think one of them is going to be our book because we can give you that jumping off point into the silo so that when you pick up the silo book, you'll already be way ahead of the game. And each one of our applications that we're using as a sample code is crafted with some business purpose in mind to give you that jumping off point. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I see myself, you know, for the next bunch of years really is kind of um, leveraging this technology and pushing the bounds of it. So. I, I got to tell you about one experience really fast. You have never seen, I have never seen anybody go up a learning curve like watching Alex go up the .NET learning curve. It made my neck hurt. It was ballistic. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, I get that he had, he didn't come to this, you know, right fresh out of um, high school, but, you know, he came from Next and he came from a lot of computing experience and so on. But I, we handed him um, some .NET material and a project, and it was like watching someone just consume it and mm. just, it was just frightening and, and aghast to watch. So when we took on .NET 3, we started on an equal footing, and he just, you know, took off with it. It was it was amazing. And he, I absolutely agree with him. It has been far harder than either of us anticipated. 
because .NET 3 is, um, is first of all, not trivial, and there's an awful lot there. And the transition from, obviously, from .NET 1 to 2 was relatively small. But even the transition from MFC to .NET, while it was a very significant transition, in some ways, this is a bigger transition. In some ways, this is really um, one of the biggest transitions I've seen Microsoft go through. This is almost as big as the transition going into Windows 3. That is to wow. say, it is, it is really almost a platform-level transition. Wow. The, uh, the, you know, Microsoft is always trying to, to just to get back to workflow for a minute. Microsoft has always said that, you know, the, ever since BizTalk became this, you know, their, their thing to talk about, that there, there, there will arise out of the software development minions, these business analysts slash, you know, uh, architect developer types who, who draw the flow charts and who, you know, who develop the application from the top down architecturally, but who don't actually do the code implementation. Do you see many of these people out there working among us? <laughs> can, I, can I take a first crack at that one? The, I appreciate their, their vision, right? And you can see, because, I mean, BizTalk is incredibly powerful in the way it allows you to interoperate with a bunch of different things, mm-hmm. as long as you know how to hook them all together. Um, but the, I, don't think, I don't think management consultants serving as architects with the workflow tools, if they don't understand what's going on underneath the hood, right, I don't know that they'll come up with the best solutions. And maybe that's not important. Maybe it's cost-effective enough and processing power is what it is, and the business objects they have to play with in their workflow library will be good enough that they can do that. But I'd be a little suspicious that, you know, at the top of your stack somewhere, you need someone who knows the stack top to bottom yeah, to help you make good decisions along the way. So a guy working in tandem with a, a developer who, who could say, all right, go, I need a component that does this, all right, I need a component that does this. You're, in order to know what you need, you need to know that it can be done, and you need to know where it fits. Is that what you're saying? You, well, you need some, uh, you know, when I used to, when I hired people to work for me um, at Apple and they get stuck, and I'd say, you're stuck, and you're stuck doing something that you think should have been done before, because it seems to you like someone should have solved this problem before, chances are you're not reading the APIs well enough. Yeah. Right? Go look for it in the APIs. Right. That's now true with Microsoft. If you find yourself trying to, trying to solve a problem that you feel like, geez, you know, I can't be the first person to have tried to solve this problem. Yeah, probably not. Chances are you're not looking at the APIs close enough. But what it, so the APIs are, are very good, but you need someone who knows the APIs and knows how to read the APIs to know what kind of advice to give. So I think it's a partnership, mm. right? I think someone, someone I, I like people who don't know what can't be done because they yeah. will propose solutions that when you go to implement them will totally challenge you. Yeah. And that's beneficial for us all. To have someone who, who doesn't know that, that's, you know that we have decided that some, such and such is not possible, mm. right, 
it's it's like the you know the four minute mile mark. The first guy to break the four minute mile mark. It took a long time to get there, and then after people knew it was possible, they did other things. They ran that faster and they drove it down. The same thing here. You you need people who don't know what's not possible to give you your design ideas, right? To conceive new innovative solutions. And then you need people who actually know the stack top to bottom to help you navigate how to accomplish that. Flying toasters, please. <laughs> yes, yes, please. <laughs> the other piece is that one of the reasons that Alex and I make a, a good team is that I think Alex has a good sensitivity to many of the enterprise issues. And for the last number of years, I have been thinking and focusing on what is it that either a single programmer pair of programmers or at most three programmers can build that is meaningful and effective in a, in a, in a short amount of time. Mm. And um, one of the things that .NET 3 challenges is that, is that world different? Are the things that we can build with small numbers of people in a short amount of time different? And that's something that we're actively exploring. Because I like working in very, very small teams for relatively small um, clients who who are not part of large enterprises, and that's a, that really is a different challenge. And our book is aimed both at the developer who's working within an enterprise, but also at independent programmers, contract programmers, people who are working in much smaller groups as well. Mm. And you really need to meet both of those needs. Well, guys, uh, we come to the end of the show here. And, um, you know, what, a question I used to ask people at the end of the show, I think I'll bring it back for this one because you guys seem like uh, people who are have your heads above the, above the water and are looking around and see what other people are doing. Is there anything that you've downloaded recently that you really like or, or maybe um, a website you went to or uh, a tool that you bought or something really cool that you want to share? Oh, I can think of a few. Alex, you have a couple. Hmm. I have. Um, I have. A, I have a fantastic book that I think people should read. Okay. Um, and it's not your book, is it? Well, no. I mean, they, they should read that <laughs> book too. But I'm the, just the one I'm thinking of is um, it's called Massive Change, and it's by Bruce Mao, and it's um, targeted people. I mean, the premise is that now that we know that engineering isn't really a hurdle. Yeah. We've done everything. We put a man on the moon. It's time to turn our attention away from engineering per se and focus on design hmm. and designing good solutions as opposed to engineering good solutions. And what's the name of the book again? It's called Massive Change. Massive Change. Cool. Okay, if he's recommending books, then I'm going to go with a much smaller and more targeted book called Don't Make Me Think. Oh, I love Steve that book. Krug. It's a wonderful book for web design. It's about web, web design. design, yeah. And, yeah. It, and, it, and it's uh, targeted at the idea of creating websites that don't force people to scratch their heads when they look at them. Right. Um, a, a site that I'm intrigued by, not sure I like, is Visual Thesaurus, which um, basically visually shows the relationship among words. I'm very interested in that one. Um, there's also probably the, the piece of shareware that I use just all the time, 
in addition to Trillion, which I think you know most people know about by now as the integrating um, AIM and MSN and all the other IMs together. Very nice. I live is, on Trillion. Yes, is RoboForm, which hmm. lets you, which basically every time I go to a website, it has memorized all of my passwords, so I don't have to have the same password everywhere. It's memorized all my different passwords. And every time I have to fill out a form, it it has all of my information. So I just click one button and it fills in my name, address, whatever information I wanted. Soon to be replaced by Cardspace. Uh, yeah. I well, actually, yeah, the Google toolbar has been doing that for a while, and um, Microsoft's MSN toolbar does that too. Yeah. The form fill. The form fill thing. Form anyway. does it better, but that's you know just me, and also it is nice to see little independent guys getting uh, getting, getting their kick. Oh, and you know who's got a great tool is uh, Regex Buddy. If you're playing yeah. with regular expressions, they've come to my rescue again and again. I recently discovered, you know, I spend so much time developing for Microsoft that I do a lot of stuff in IE, but I recently finally cracked and 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 and. This fired up bad influence on him. I know. I fired up uh, <laughs> Firefox and found all their little add-ins because I said to a buddy of mine, oh, you know, we're doing a lot more with CSS, and I wish that I could point to an element and say, what in CSS is making it do this? Well, yeah. of course, there are all these add-ins in CSS that do exactly that. Right. So you can, you know, you can, you can get this add-in to CSS. To Firefox, you mean? Uh, for Firefox, I'm sorry, that you say, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called. There's, a, there's an add-in that says, you know, point to an element and say, you know, analyze this element. And it says, um, it's called inspect element. And, and it opens up a window, points to the element in the, you know, in the div, in the TD, and it tells you everything about it, including you drop down this little thing, and it says, okay, do you want to know the DOM node? Do you want to know the, the binding? Do you want to know the CSS style nice. rule that's being applied right now? It's just, you know, and what line in the CSS file? Is that the dev toolbar by any chance? Is that what that uh, is? This is DOM Inspector. DOM Inspector. It's just, it's you know, it's a plug-in right into Firefox, and it's just magnificent. And, uh, this one I was talking about, the dev toolbar, shows it will outline all the, the table lines and the TDs and the TRs. And, and it'll show you, like, where, you know, how the, if you have an image, say, that's put together with a lot of, with tables, mm-hmm. it'll show you the lines between them and highlight them as you move over them. That well, kind Alex of thing. has become one of these CSS fanatics who doesn't like to do layout with tables. Right, yeah. So, you know, so I got to use this thing to figure out what is it he's actually doing. <laughs> Now, the freaks that's among totally, us. Totally unfair characterization. I just simply <laughs> say, pick the right tool for the job. There you as go. As long as it's mine. Yeah. There is a new tool for building your own weblog that I've been playing with. I'm using it for my political weblog, which you have a link for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's all on one HTML page. This guy has done a phenomenal job. It's called a TiddlyWiki, and his original site for TiddlyWiki is called tiddlywiki.com, um, and and essentially you ha- it's a brilliant idea. The problem that I have with weblogs is that they tend to be very very static. You you log an issue and then you log another issue and then you log another issue. What he's done is he's built this idea that within any given entry in your log, you can make hyperlinks to other entries, and when you click on them, they open up beautifully. But everything is self-contained within one. HTML page. So you just put nice. that page up 
and people can go to that and open up, and they have this very, very dynamic experience. It's very beautiful. It's done by uh, Jeremy Rustin. I think uh, Scott Hanselman told me that he was using it and really liked it as well. All right, guys. Well, that's a show. Thanks for thanks for being on the show. Good luck with your book. And uh, wow, it was just great to talk to you about everything. Thank you, guys. It was a, it was a, it was a blast. Yeah, our pleasure. Jesse Liberty and Alex Horowitz. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a, a